0: Welcome to Inside Out NHS Dentistry Discussed, a series of podcasts brought to you by Practice Plan that focus on the big issues, changes and talking points within NHS dentistry. And now, here's your host. Hello, uh, my name is Nigel Jones, I'm the Sales and Marketing Director of the Practice Plan group of companies, and I'd like to thank you very much for joining us um, today. Um, for tonight's latest instalment of Inside Out NHS Dentistry Discuss, where I'm extremely pleased and grateful for the opportunity to have a conversation with um, Eddie Crouch, Chair of the BDA. Welcome, Eddie.
1: Uh, good evening, Nigel, and good evening to all those who are watching.
0: I- I'm, as I said, very grateful to you for um, giving up your, your time today to to join us, Eddie, and, uh, I'm looking forward to what I think will probably be quite a, a wide-ranging conversation. I know the title of the, the webinar is um, Reflections on 2020 and Predictions for 2021. So there'll be quite a bit of, um, of material for us to cover and we've only got 45 minutes. So I suspect we'll we'll run out of uh, time to cover everything. But I would like to just take this opportunity to encourage anyone that's watching that would like to pose a question to, to take advantage of the, the questions box. And I'll do my best to either weave the questions into my discussion with Eddie or to um, get to them at the end, assuming we don't run out of time. So um, please, please feel free to ask any question you like. I know Eddie actually um, earlier on was saying um, it doesn't really matter how difficult it is. I think um, everyone recognises that it's quite challenging times for a lot of people at the moment. So if there's anything you're worried about or anxious about, that you'd like to find out more information on them please please feel free to, to post it but um eddie as i say you're the you're the chair of the bda now last time we spoke um you hadn't assumed that role when with, with the last webinar so whilst i'm absolutely certain given your media presence everyone knows who you are perhaps you could just explain a little bit about what the role of the, the chair of the bda is yeah
1: well the 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 principal executive committee of the bda is the uh a a committee of directors of the BDA that run the business of the BDA uh, and help um, with, with feedback from really all, all of the committees that the BDA run um, develop policy for the BDA going forward uh, whether that's coming from the General Dental Practice Committee or the Academic Committee or the English Salary Dental Committee all of those committees feed in for the PEC to digest that information and assisting in informing policy of the BDA but essentially also to make sure that the BDA stays viable as a company uh, and has the resources to act, actually act for members. Uh, it's a non-profit making organization but every penny that we can get in helps us fight the cause for dentistry.
0: Yeah I think that's actually a really interesting point about the fact that um, you have to remain financially viable at the same time as being able to help all of your members stay financially viable, given given what was was a pretty torrid year in, in 2020. And I think one of the things that I did want to, to say up front is that uh, whilst we'll be focusing on matters specific to dentistry and contractual considerations and you know the, the longer term future for the NHS, uh, I don't think we, any of us will lose sight of, of some of the, the horrific statistics that have come out this week. And, and I know that uh, amongst those statistics, just over the weekend that's just gone were a couple of um professional colleagues as well so i think it's important to acknowledge that it, it's been a really challenging time for so many people in the profession and outside of the profession um yeah i think
1: i think the weekend was particularly tragic i i heard of three colleagues one in northern ireland uh and two in the london area that sadly passed away uh with covid um it, it, it is awful. In a week where we've had 100,000 people, um, you know, the numbers have passed 100,000 people, are people who have passed away. Um, the effects of the pandemic must be awful for those families that have had terrible losses. And I, my greatest sympathy to anyone out there that has lost a friend, a relative or a colleague.
0: Yeah. And, and, and likewise, as you say, I mean, it, it's it's a. Uh, an incredible number. When when I think back to um, March, April time, uh, when uh, statistics like twenty thousand would be a good result type uh, comments were being made, you know, to, to be where we are now with with actually still quite some way to go. I think the human cost of this has been enormous, and and I think it's 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 very clear um, taking it to that professional level that there's been been a, a huge amount of challenge that for the profession and and I just wondered what, what your sense when you look back on 2020 was of the the, the main challenges that, that the profession had to deal with but also just because I think it's really important for us to spend a little bit of time on it some of the aspects of, of the way the BDA responded to help its members that the sort of areas that you're particularly proud of. Well I
1: think um, really stepping up to the plate really with um, with with actually negotiating for the profession and, and the way that we negotiated for the profession, I'd like to thank Dave Cotton and his vice chairs at the GDPC, VJ Suga and Sean Charwood. You know, some of the things that they managed to secure were fantastic. What we didn't secure, obviously, was a lot of support for private practice. And that is something that, you know, we, we tried our best, but it didn't happen. As a consequence of that, uh, many, many of those practices, obviously with a mixed economy uh, are struggling and perhaps we'll pick up on that later. Um, but one of the things I'm really proud of is despite the fact that, uh, you know, the staff and the BDA were actually working from home, they managed to get out so much information to the profession on a regular basis. The daily updates were the place to go to look uh, for reliable information about what was going on. Um, there was plenty of talk across social media of what people thought was going on, but the place to go if you wanted reliable information was the BDA website. Um, and we've been pleased that we've seen a, a small increase in members because of that. Over the years, we've seen a gradual decline in the number of members. Obviously, the, the more members we have, uh, the better p- place we are really for fighting for the profession. Um, so I, I've, been, I've been incredibly hardened by that. As you say, um, we've, the revenue for the BDA has been affected like any other business. Um, we haven't been getting the advertising in the, in the BDJ. Uh, many of the events that we run that, that bring in an income to subsidise members' um, subscriptions have not been there. Uh, and financially, um, every every business, including every dental practice on the high street, we're in the same boat at the BDA.
0: Yeah, I, I would um, uh, like to say, and I think I may have said this the last time we spoke, but I, I personally have found your website incredibly useful. Those coronavirus updates um, and the, the roundup by Martin at the end of each week, really a, a, an extremely useful source of information and and I've not seen that bettered anywhere so so I, I personally have been very grateful but I know many many of the practices with whom the practice plan group works have really benefited from that information so I, I would entirely share um, your, your yeah. the, the,
1: the millions uh, well, you know, the millions of hits on the website have been phenomenal really I mean we produced a, a, a video uh, at the start of reopening back in, in June uh, on donning and doffing, and, and that video alone has been viewed over 8,000 times. So some of the stats are incredible,
0: and, and I think that shows that the the, um, the need for information in in what was such a uh, in some senses very rapidly changing situation, in other senses not so rapid. But it, it felt like the goalposts were continuously moving, and staying on top of that was a challenge for for your members as well as as well as for you. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I I actually had COVID at the end of March, I
1: was ill uh, for quite a period of time and it happened that, you know, uh, the world was going mad at the time, we were having meetings, you know, virtually all day to try and resolve some of the problems that were there uh, and there was huge media interest, I mean, the media interest in dentistry throughout the pandemic has been, you know, phenomenal. uh, and, and and it's been it's been very, very challenging, long days for people who have been working. I know uh, some of the people on the committees have been having meetings you know way way into the evening to to actually work on behalf of the profession. So uh, you know I'm very, very grateful to many of my colleagues across the BDA who've put hours and hours in, including all the staff in in the local offices in um, in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. You know i've been getting emails at 11 o'clock at night from some of those people some of the work it's just been phenomenal
0: yeah yeah no no I, th- I think it's been been fantastic and i think i think that highlights as i say that the the challenges that um your members were were facing and the questions that they had and the the issues that they had to tackle when when you look back on 2020 I know there'll be be a massive amount of of things that had to be dealt with, but are there certain key issues that stand out as being particularly um, notable?
1: Um, it, it's it's hard because everything blurs into one. Really, you can't remember what, what what's happened. But I I think uh, the the collective way, for example, the profession came together to actually get urgent dental care centres up, and we worked effectively at a local level, at LDC level, to actually get that up and running. Uh, Many of my colleagues who, you know, put up their own practices uh, for urgent dental care centres so that, you know, patients could have an access to a service. I mean, what we did see during the pandemic was, uh, the early part of the pandemic, is what, what the world looked like without any dental services at all. And it wasn't pretty. I mean, the number of patients that were, Uh, on social media with with huge problems Uh, and to actually have real pride in at at the height of of uncertainty for those practices to put themselves forward you know struggling to get the PPE to get open to do that and the way that the practices generally across the country have adapted to a a completely different way of working you know it's it's phenomenal what dental teams can do uh given really real adversity in actually stepping up to the plate dealing with changes to their cross infection control procedures that are are completely different to what they were doing before dealing with social uh distancing in their practices in such a professional way I'm, i'm immensely proud of what the profession has actually done
0: yeah i i totally agree with you i mean i've been working with the profession for over 30 years now and i I, I can't remember a period of such intense change when that, that need for flexibility and adaptability was, was so acute. And um, I, I think uh, that your point about changes to the way that they operate, uh, absolutely phenomenal how people um, were able to respond to that and respond to things like um, the requirement for palatine, time, which I, I think uh, it, it, that, that was arguably the biggest challenge from a, at least from a commercial point of view, affecting practices. And and I see just recently SDCEP have updated their report and not really changed their conclusion. So what's your current take on that issue?
1: Yeah, I I think uh, obviously there was a lot, well there still is a lot being made of of ventilation obviously in practices. I mean in our own particular area NHS England are actually subsidising some surveys of um, practices to see what their air changes are in their their clinical environment. Without doubt, a lot of a lot of practices have invested in some equipment that I would wonder in the long term whether it's been a wise investment or not. Uh, and I know that there's still a lot of debate going on about some of the things that are put forward as the solution. Um, but you know, the, work, working with with high-level PPE on in in, in someone's mouth is. For a long period of time, is absolutely exhausting, um, and and you know whatever we can do to to, to mitigate against that going forward, obviously throughput of practices now I think is probably plateauing off. I think most practices have got into the into the uh, a rhythm of how they can safely and effectively provide care for their patients. Um, so some of the assertions that NHS England made at the beginning was that things were going in an upward trajectory. I think we've got to a point now where things have plateaued off. And that's what worries me really about, you know, setting a target for people that gives them a, a real quandary about, you know, whether they maintain that high level of safety within dental practices, which I'm sure is there, you know, while they're continually worrying about their financial security of their practice, because, you know, they've got a cliff edge to avoid which financially would cause them serious harm going forward and and make a practice that is potentially vulnerable because it's got a mixed income uh, from NHS and private income and and has suffered probably quite badly from private income because of fallow time and various other um, throughput of patients. You know, to actually put something in place now that jeopardizes those practices in the future just seems a, a ridiculous thing for me. Uh, for the for NHS England to have done.
0: Yeah, it would be interesting to explore that um, a, a little further. But perhaps before I'm, I I do that, um, I, I wonder if you could give us an insight into what it's like negotiating with, for example, NHS England. I know you'll have responsibility right the way throughout uh, the UK. But with with say NHS England, I, I I can't quite visualise how that actually works. What what sort of steps you go through, especially in a virtual world yeah i mean it, it,
1: it's been uh, sort of pigs and troughs really we've got the i mean d- during the, it took forever almost to to actually negotiate what an abatement would be uh, and so for the first part of the the summer was virtually op- occupied with negotiating sixteen point seven five percent and it fluctuated around from much higher than that to, to lower than that uh, and and the same really with with this target. Uh, that we've been set i mean the negotiations on that started in september uh they were going to be introduced you know for the final quarter of the year um but you know i i managed to secure a, a meeting with joe churchill when it looked as though they'd become entrenched in the 45 percent uh, position uh, and she she gave me audience and she actually listened to the arguments we were making and she listened intently i mean obviously she was trying to balance up access for patient care which is something that you know that there is a real problem we know the millions of appointments that have been lost and that is a problem and we must deal with that Um, but I think there was a suggestion that a large amount of the profession were actually taking it easy uh, and, and doing the bare minimum and I didn't see that in my colleagues you know everyone locally I knew was working flat out to try and do that she listened to that argument and asked NHS England to go away and think about it again Uh, And they did go away and think about it and suddenly came back with the same answer that they had at the beginning. But then it got nearer and nearer to Christmas and we were getting more and more concerned that colleagues were going to have a a very limited uh, period of time to actually introduce changes within their practice to set up for this 45% target. So we decided to break ranks, Uh, we were negotiating on a confidential basis uh, but Dave Cotham and his team decided that it was time that the profession knew where we were going post Christmas. Uh, I don't think NHS England were very pleased about the fact that you know we we got coverage on the BBC and colleagues began to hear about what was you know in, in the pipeline. but we felt it was in, impossible to to waste because one of the other things that's been transparent throughout is that the real time lag, for NHS England to actually get communications out. They make a decision, we understand what that decision is, uh, and yet it takes forever to to actually get letters out. We had letters from the chief dental officer that were three weeks out of date by the time they were released to the profession. You know, that that can't happen in the future. Uh, Hopefully, we're never going to have a situation like this again. But I think the structure of NHS England seriously needs looking at um, because if, if that's the, the efficiency of getting out communication they're getting better they're getting better they're getting more information out on a more reliable basis now but many of my colleagues were left in the dark or hearing about for example the practices opening in a in a in a ticker tape under boris johnson at at his 5 p.m um newscast rather than actually being told uh directly by nhs england we were reopening again that, that that's not right
0: uh, no, no, I, I I don't think um there'll be many people that disagree with you there that um the comms has, has been um nowhere near the standard that you want it to be most of the time. I sometimes get the sense that that um NHS England's hands have been tied a little bit because they're dependent on on other people. So it, it does feel like there's a, a broader comms issue um within within government rather than necessarily just confined to NHS England. But from a professions point of view, I I, I totally agree with you about the delay. In, in information being being ratified and confirmed and uh, and that 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 seems to have been, been you know, difficult now yeah now you mentioned- i think i think the the
1: perception that we got really was the people we were speaking to on a face-to-face basis weren't the decision makers uh, that decision was being made higher up the chain in nhs england um, and because of that um when we when we did make a decision um well when there was seemingly agreement and then they had to go back to be checked with the higher management uh, that caused delay and then he came back saying sorry we don't agree to that we've got to keep on talking um, and you know I was pleased yesterday um, uh, that Simon Stevens was before a health select committee yesterday and faced a, a question on dentistry um, he, he he didn't know the answer he had to take it away uh, but that, that to me probably spells the issue that we have that, that you know, the, the higher echelons of NHS England really, you know, they, they know dentistry exists, but they know very little about it.
0: And do you think things like, uh, I mean, it's, it's actually a daft question really, but I was thinking about the debate um, uh, in the House of Commons recently, which which uh, I, I I thought was, um uh, I mean, I, I can't remember seeing MPs that well briefed on on dentistry. So I think, uh, I know with the encouragement from the BDA, I think that a lot of your members did a very good job of making sure their local MP properly understood the issues, and I, I think that was given a really good airing during during the debate. Yeah, I I,
1: I, was, I was really pleased about that because the, the you know dentistry rarely gets you know a five minute debate in in in, in the house of the parliament. Um, and, and even when it is debated, it's often a Westminster Hall debate where there's hardly anyone there. But you know, 32 MPs took part in that debate, and it was given you know over a over, well over an hour of time. Um, over a thousand e- um, emails went into MPs from, from members, and I, I thank you for all of that. Uh, and you're right, many many MPs actually did meet on a face to face basis with the person who'd written the letter. I mean, I spoke to a couple of MPs uh, that were were part of the debate. And, you know, the other thing that was encouraging was it was across the whole of the House. Um, Mm -hmm. There there were MPs from all sides of the House that actually had sympathy with the arguments that colleagues had put to them. Um, And I think that had an effect on Joe Churchill. Uh, I I think her her closing comments, although she wasn't prepared to move from the target of 45 percent, I think it, she she realized that dentistry is a problem and needs sorting out. And, uh, you know, even pre-pandemic, we had massive issues uh, about a contract that was failing uh, and, and prototypes that were actually struggling. Um, and, and the evaluation of those prototypes w- was probably showing that it wasn't the way that NHS England were gonna go forward. Um, and, you know, if, that, if anything from that debate, maybe joe churchill now realizes that dentistry can't be put on the back burner and we're going to keep up the pressure obviously to try and make sure it stays uh, there on the forefront of ministers minds to actually get some change
0: yes i mean I, that that was very much my sense from her closing comments was that that whilst and and, and i will touch on this again in a second but whilst the, there didn't seem to be the opportunity for her to, to do a u-turn in in such public circumstances on anything um, she did convey, I think, um, a, sen- a greater sense of urgency than I've seen um, previously uh, about the need for, for substantial change. But on, on that point about um, the, the 45%, um, I, I think there would have been quite a few members of the profession that were clinging to the hope that um, the, the uh, debate or just the general circumstances would lead to a softening of the stance on that i'm not getting any sense that that's going to happen what, what's what's your your sense
1: yeah I, I think it was highly unlikely that she was ever going to announce a u-turn actually at the dispatch box uh even after a, that 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 convincing arguments that were put there by other mps um uh, she's she's replied actually today joe churchill to a, a letter we've co-drafted myself and dave cotton um where know again they're they're robustly defending the 45% target they say it's been modeled and they say that they've taken clinical advice but if you ask anyone um, who's actually given them the clinical advice or if you actually ask to see the modeling um, you know some of that has been reticent in being shared with the BDA Um, but the argument she's making now is that um, anyone who doesn't hit their target Uh, and has mitigating circumstances, like they've lost staff, they've had to close the practice, Um, you know, they've had patients cancelling in huge numbers, which many are. I mean, in in my own practice, the first week of January, one in four appointments were were not kept. Um, And and, and it's continued that. I mean, we've had bad weather here in the Midlands in the last few days and snow's affected things as well. Uh, you know, I can see many colleagues running behind on that target and panicking. Um, and that letter today from Joe Churchill says that NHS England will look at all those mitigating factors uh, and take into account some uh, some clemency, I guess, on, on clawing money back at the end of a financial year. My worry is that it won't be equitable. Uh, there'll be many colleagues who still have stress while they wait for a decision on their, on their case. Um, and, and, and the numbers working within NHS England uh, to deal with this are, are much, much lower than they've been for years and years. They've, they've had a real cull of staff at NHS England um, and some some staff within the dental teams are redeployed across vaccination projects and various other areas. You know, are they going to have the staff to deal with the, the large volume of practices that I think will be disputing the end of year figures?
0: i think that's a really important point because I, I i've heard the term exception used but i it, i'm not sure exception is the right term from from what i can gather i think there'll be um you know it's going to be a sizable minority but you know sizable of people with with issues and as you say the, the double whammy of having fewer um team members to be able to handle those those challenges uh, i i think that is going to cause cause some problems for practices. And I think one of the things that uh, I think we're both slightly worried about is that practices have done pretty well in the main at managing to stay afloat um, in the past 10 um, months or so, um, but but for some of them, they've become more fragile during the course of that that 10 months. So do you have a concern about how, how you know, whether or not this will be the, the straw that breaks the camel's back for some practices? Yeah, I do.
1: I really do. Yeah, I mean, we we carried out a survey at the beginning of the pandemic. We showed a lot of practices were really worried about their long-term future, uh, and I think um, probably they were bailed out by sea bills loans and various other things that were along. But you know, they're taking on borrowing. Um, we've we've got abatements still to come out, out of contracts. We've got. um you know, end of year where people may, may fall off that cliff and have large amounts. I mean, NASDAQ predicts that, you know, a very small uh, under delivery below 36% will mean tens of thousands to some practices. And that may be the tipping point for them to actually close. Can't see the logic in NHS England forcing practices over the edge. Uh, when pre-pandemic we had areas of real terrible access problems you know what? What this potentially could create is an access problem across the whole of England. Um, and, and 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 you know when you've got uh, regimes like in Scotland, where their target is about 15%, Northern Ireland about the same, 15%, and in Wales that they haven't got a UDA activity at all. They're trusting the colleagues to do the right thing in Wales, uh, and and based along that, they're still going along with with contract reform. Um, and, and yet in England, they set a target of 45%. The logic just, uh, you know, isn't there. It just isn't there.
0: Yeah, it, it does It does seem very surprising. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if access has been the key priority for successive governments over many, many years, if not decades, to then suddenly reduce the supply of dentistry by allowing a whole load to go bust, doesn't, just, just doesn't make an awful lot of sense. I, I agree with you. But now I, moving on from, from um, Q4 of this financial year. I mean one of the questions that that we, we've had in is um, where are, are the BDA at in terms of negotiations with NHS England regarding post-April arrangements? Um, and, and I guess a, a very related point, what do you think will happen as regards um, the future for UDAs? I, I was intrigued by your comment about how long it took just to agree the abatement. So it sort of feels that that trying to create a, a brand new contract that addresses all of the deficiencies of the current contract, including UDAs, that, that feels like a, a big ask. It always seems to me that people understand some of the problems and the issues very clearly, but potential solutions, let alone implementing the solutions, still seem to be a way off. But again, what, where, where are we at in terms of post-April?
1: Well, I think that the announcement today that from the Prime Minister that schools are going to stay closed till March probably indicates that we're, we're, we're going to continue with a, a significant reduced UDA target going into the first quarter of next year. The chances of negotiating alternatives to a UDA contract in the time span that we've got left isn't there. Uh, there's lots of talk, I mean the Office of the Chief Dental Officer has convened uh, working groups about getting ahead of the curve um, NHS England last week convened a, a meeting which I attended, where we were all talking about how how we could alter things in the short term. There are some ideas out there about flexible commissioning, about uh, you know allocating um, non-clinical activity maybe in preventative terms uh, that, that that might um, assist things. I mean, we we know we're going to have uh, a huge problem with inequalities of healthcare in dentistry, really. Uh, with the number of I mean we think about the millions of people that haven't been seen during the, the last 12 months. Um so that there are ways that we could actually deliver a service and still um stay within the, the the footfall within the practice, that's a limiting factor because you know if we if we if we're still in the eye of a pandemic, we're not going to be able to physically get more patients through practices, uh irrespective. So even if you were getting dcps delivering things with prevention if you haven't got the capacity or the room within the practice or the, the areas within the practice to actually have safe footfall through the practice those those ideas are great but they they're not practical in 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 the way that we're working at the moment um i i would hope that you know we're talking about starting a long-term um discussion about making significant changes. We have to get away from a UDA contract. What's evident now is even the minister at the dispatch box admitted that it's not fit for purpose. Um, We've been badgering away uh, to try and get Jeremy Hunt and the Health Select Committee to reinvigorate that investigation Mm. that they did start but was aborted because of the SNAP election in November uh, 2019 Uh, and Jeremy Hunt is quite receptive to that. I've got a meeting with someone from the Health Select Committee uh, commentary MP in the next week or two where I will be making the case of reinvigorating uh, an inquiry into you know how we go forward uh, so I'm, I, amongst the depression I'm, I'm I'm, optimistic that some change will come and soon hopefully.
0: And, and Eddie if I, if I could delve into that a little bit more that, that I'm sort of slightly unclear um, I'm a non-practice owner, so um, I'm I'm a little removed from it, but actually what the longer term looks like post-Covid, because I can understand the immediate issues to do with social distancing and fallow time and and how that impacts on patient throughput. Um, But but I'm not at all clear that we'll return back to how it was pre-Covid and the same patient volumes going through the system and yet the system seemed to be designed for high patient volumes. so when you talk about about change what sort of things would be on the table you think because it feels like actually it's got to be pretty dramatic change really
1: yeah i i think you know what one of the real issues for for nhs england and for politicians has been the volume of people who've needed urgent and emergency care and a lot of patients who have not, you know, we, we knew before before the pandemic, there was only about 50% of the population that attended on a two-year basis. And there were a huge number of people out there that only ever went when whenever they had the problem. And of course, now they're really struggling to actually get in and be seen. Um, uh, and so would that change the focus of what NHS England want from the future? Will they actually commission more For urgent care for those types of patients, will there be an opportunity? I mean, in our own area, uh, there's been some spot purchasing recently of practices that aren't open on a Saturday for them to open up and actually take some of the pressure off the 111 calls that are coming in for urgent dental care. Uh, You know, I see. You know, we, we we all talk about the fact that you know any change for dentistry meant that there was no more money. But in fact, the, the, the budget for dentistry has, has fallen significantly in the last decade. And, you know, that's not the BDA saying that. That's that's everyone who looks at the stats. It's obvious that the budget has fallen and clawback has become a major issue. Um, and if we can keep some of that money there for actually developing services that are more attuned to actually um, looking after the patients that really need eye care, not making the patient that needs huge amounts of Um, Care to make them dentally fit, unattractive for the the practice to take on. Then that has to be the goal of of any change. Um, Those patients need to be seen, uh, but they, they, you know, sadly that's the other thing about the 45% target. Those are the patients that are probably not the ones we want in the practice at the moment because it's so hard to deliver a course of treatment and a a three UDA for multiple appointments that might need aerosol generating procedures. Um, you know, the, we, we told NHS England that uh, the effect of actually setting a target like that would mean access for urgent care would, would fall. I, I'm, I'm worried about the long-term future of the urgent dental care centres because um, locally they talk to me and say that they're happy to, to, to support those, those type of practices. But we still don't know the detail about that but you know that's the direction I think we have to go is actually concentrate where we want to spend the money on uh to look after patients within the NHS and what the NHS actually what the offer of NHS dentistry should be and that those need better definition
0: I, I think that's that's such an important point and um uh, I'm reminded of uh, Jimmy Steele's report with that sort of pyramid of, of care and the decreasing priority for public funding, that kind of thing. And 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 a lot of what you've just been saying, Eddie, um, does does sound similar to um, different versions of a, a core service. And I know there's always been that issue about core service, core funding. But but I'm almost hearing from you that actually we just need greater transparency and honesty about, as you say, what the NHS offer is. And 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 maybe more realism because I think that's one of the things that's um always uh, slightly bothered me is is cr- creating a huge amount of of pressure on on dentists to um and and actually really relying on people's professionalism because they've come up with systems that have perverse incentives that the professionalism of dentists overrides but but that that's an incredibly pressured environment in which to be working but I can't quite see how they can. They, without a, a significant increase in funding, actually really address that. I, I don't. Does that make sense? Well, uh, yeah. It, 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 you know, for for years
1: and years and years, we've been told about you know the fact that there wasn't money uh, available to to spend on various things, but that money's been found, obviously. You know if you think about the vaccination program if you think about the free ppe portal that's there now for practices you think about all these areas um, where where, and, and sadly because dentistry was in such a fragile position going into the pandemic it suffered far worse than other areas i, I was listening to someone on the radio today talking about the health inequalities and suddenly the people who have um, who passed away during the pandemic and and the issues on things like obesity uh and um you know the the way the sugar tax has been used for example uh you know if we are really really serious about prevention uh, and 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 as dentists we are but if the government are really serious about prevention and they talk about it then that has to be funded and it has to be on a trustworthy basis they but they, they can't measure widgets. They, they must trust the profession to actually deliver prevention properly and appropriately like they were doing in, in the uh, prototypes. But sadly, because access was dropping, um, you know, it was something that they couldn't risk carrying on.
0: Yes, I think, I think that, that's where I, I always think it's, it's a challenge because a system that actually seemed to work very well for patients and for um, practice teams didn't seem to work well enough for government. So try, trying to keep all three of those stakeholders happy seems to be quite quite a difficult one. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that we've had quite a few questions come in and I've, I've got about maybe eight, eight or ten minutes left with you, Eddie. So I think what I'll do is, although I've got hundreds more questions I'd love to ask you myself. I, I think I'll, I'll just try and whiz through some of these these points that have come in. Um, there, there was um, one, one a very specific uh, observation that's been made about fallow time and the need for ventilation and learning from, uh, I, I think, um, places like South Korea, um, who had to, to ad- adopt an approach to that um, in the face of SARS-1. Um, is there anything that you think we should be doing more in regards to ventilation to help mitigate um, the fallow time? The observations made in this this question about how ridiculous um, the the one hour was the default position, and that it, you don't really see an equivalent of fallow time elsewhere in the world. So, so it, do you think we'll make any any headway on that? Um, well,
1: I mean, Separate are, are, It's their document is a live document. They're going to look at that at regular intervals. And I, I think once we have the science behind, a lot of the decisions were made on the fact that there was lack of science behind. Uh, so it was risk averse. Public Health England were doing the best that they could probably with the information that they had, and they were making decisions that they thought was were, were safe. I mean, I was talking to um, a colleague today in, uh, in a dental school um and and they are now getting their students far far more experience by actually using hand pieces below the 60,000 revs per minute uh and and uh, using ppe obviously for non-aerosol generating procedures and this colleague was telling me that virtually all the dentistry that needed to be done could be done with these with these hand pieces um apart from possibly some crown preparations um and and he was saying for for their dental school it's changed the way that they've worked so that students can get that experience and possibly um you know graduate on time which was a real worry for for many of our students out there um that that wasn't going to happen and it's transformed the way that they deliver so i think the way that we practice will change I, i know colleagues have invested as i say in huge amounts of money in, in equipment that air scrubbers and you know filtration systems and things like that we should do worry about you know whether that investment long term is going to be worthwhile um because i think the science will develop uh ventilation in practices i think is an issue um that there, there is a health technical memorandum uh that that talks about the the ventilation within clinical environment i think that's something that we've escaped from but it's probably lurking over the horizon uh, and so that is a worry that you know in the future some practices that are working in in a situation where ventilation is a problem will have uh, either significant investment to make or actually not be viable in their current location
0: yeah yeah in the course of that answer, Eddie, you, you touched on students and I think actually that could be a whole webinar um, topic on its on its own right and uh, I, I'm sort of mindful of some of the Foundation Year um, uh, colleagues that I've spoken to who, um, you know, that, that's been a different world for them, you know, the ability to just uh, have someone stick their head into the surgery and give you some advice isn't there, so sort of mentoring has been been tough, so I think that might be a topic we we return to um, at some point if you were amenable to it. But I I just wanted to pick up on another aspect of um, of dentistry which we haven't touched on yet, which is secondary care and the backlog. So one of the questions we've we, we've had in is about the fact there's a massive backlog with paediatrics or surgery or medicine, and uh, the fact that you're not getting responses to referrals. And um, So so the, the waiting times for GAs for kids uh, is, is it's just just really big. Is there, is there any any I don't know what what how the BDA are viewing that, what they're involved in, in those sort of discussions around that topic.
1: No, no, we're very involved in that. I mean, obviously, we deal with the the, the hospital dental services members uh, and and the academic side of it as well. Um, and and the hospital dental group that we have, you know, all of that feeds into to the work that we do at the BDA. Um. It, it, I think, I think when Birmingham Dental Hospital um, w- was shut for a period of time, they had to go through probably 30,000 maybe patients that were either waiting to be seen, were in, in, in courses of treatment or uh, possibly were scheduled for some sort of review, huge numbers and uh, you know and that, that waiting list has, has, has probably increased quite substantially. I know uh, some reporters actually did a an FOI on the waiting list in dental hospitals and in some dental hospitals it's doubled for sure and you're right it's it's always the pediatric general anesthetic uh, list um, for for children's extractions that gets cancelled because you know the priority isn't there or those anaesthetists are actually redeployed elsewhere saving people's lives in ITU Uh, And that's right, that's obviously right, but it's obviously a knock-on effect. But when you hear about colleagues, you know, consultants in paediatric dentistry who've been redeployed uh, within their trust to actually go and work on COVID wards to turn patients over, you know, so that they can survive by breathing properly, um, you know, surely there are other people within the health service that could be delivering that and our secondary care colleagues need the support to actually do what they 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 are skilled to do, which is treat patients. Um, real worry, obviously, about the 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 lack of referrals for oral cancer, which has fallen off a cliff. We know oral cancer is one of the most rapidly rising cancers, and we know that you know delay uh, produces such awful effects for the patient. You know, in either uh, life expectancy or the treatment that they need, and all of that has to be addressed. Uh, and, and we will keep banging the drum for for those colleagues to be supported.
0: Yeah, I I completely share your concern about the uh, you know what what might be waiting for us in terms of oral cancer. Um, it, it's it's uh it's really quite disturbing that uh, that aspect. But but with, without diminishing all of the problems within secondary care as a whole. Um, uh, just a, a very couple of very specific questions as we we come towards the end. Um, it, an observation about the fact that. Um, people have just about stayed afloat, but when the abatement gets deducted, that might be. Um, uh, I, I, this is the way I've interpreted the comment. Anyway, uh, that that straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, the the um, the issue of vaccination. Obviously, uh, that, that we're all clinging to that as as the the way forward and the way out of this this situation. Um, and there's been a bit of debate uh, recently, particularly over the weekend around the delay between the first and second COVID vaccination with the BMA uh, expressing some concern. Um, yeah. d- do the BDA have a position on that?
1: Um, well, not, not not in the same way that the BMA have come out about it. No, I mean, we're, we're just grateful that actually the, the lobbying that we've done has managed to secure, you know, in the vast majority of areas now, um, vaccination for our teams. And I, I'm hearing now that, you know, many of the uh, colleagues are, are, are getting their first vaccinations uh, and we're pretty confident that, you know, by the middle of February, most of the dental teams will have been vaccinated. Uh, I, I'm not an expert on the science, uh, but, you know, if if Public Health England uh, and the, the chief scientific officers that are, are advising the government say that 12 weeks is okay. Um, it's difficult for me to challenge that. I can understand why the BMA might want, uh, you know, the, it, it's a pragmatic thing really, isn't it? You know, if, if, if we're to vaccinate the numbers that we are to vaccinate in, in the length of time uh, that we want to get people at least to have the first vaccination. Uh, I, I had mine on the 3rd of January, I was quite lucky. I managed to uh, secure a, a, a cancellation at one of the local hospitals. My next one is on the 29th of March uh, and I'm perfectly happy to to wait that time and I'm sure many colleagues will be as
0: well. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Um, so last, last uh, well, one question and one observation. So a very specific question. Uh, how much scope do you think there'll be for handing back UDAs to NHS England and reduce the size of contracts be- because you're worried about being able to achieve the 45%? <laughs>
1: Um, yeah, it's not a conversation that we've had with NHS England and I and I, I, I would encourage colleagues uh, not to do that really uh, at the moment. Uh, I, I would hope that if there are significant reasons why they're not able to deliver a 45% target, um, I'd rather they made their case on those reasons rather than hand them back in advance. Um, we're, we're hopeful that we will be able to secure no breach notices at the end of this year because this is a year like no other Um, and you know if NHS England are taking significant amounts of money away from contracts and issuing breach notices to me that just seems totally inappropriate Um, so there is no advantage I would say into handing that UDA back at this particular time see what you can safely achieve and then if you haven't been able to achieve it do your best probably with the support of the BDA to argue your case about why you haven't been able to deliver that
0: contract yeah no no i i i thank you very much for that um very clear steer the the, the last observation that's come in is kind of linked to that and linked to some of the earlier points that we've said which is that actually from uh, government and nhs england's point of view um that this contributor has suggested that it's it's all about keeping financial control and nothing to do with Good treatment for patients or a good working environment for dentists, which is, I think, part and parcel of trying to to keep those three stakeholder groups Fruits happy. And certainly, for, from my position um, working with the profession, it, it does feel as if um, the the funding, as you touched on before, seems to have been steadily reducing, but the control seems to have been steadily increasing. And and I just wonder how how long the profession will will stomach that because there there must come a point where it goes too far
1: yeah i I mean many conversations i've had with colleagues about the way that this 45 percent target has been introduced has made them have a real think about you know their long-term future within the nhs and, and you know do do they want to be put in the situation where they've got that ethical quandary about whether they do the right thing uh, and I know we've talked about these in the, in the past when we've spoken, Nigel, about, you know, the stress levels that are there within uh, within the profession and, and this has been the worst year ever. The numbers uh, of people seeking help for stress-related illness is, is, is huge. Um, so they've lost a significant amount of money, obviously, from patient charge revenue um, with, with so little activity and no activity. For a period of time there is a real suspicion um, that this is about the money and whether the it's about the people high up in NHS England that have made the decision that dentistry needs to bring in a better revenue than it has done Uh, that is a real suspicion within the people who have been negotiating uh, face to face with NHS England that behind all of this the driver is the amount of money that dentistry has not brought in during this particular pandemic
0: yeah yeah i i i think um i mean in a way you can have some some sympathy for the uh, the financial um challenges facing the government and how it prioritizes its use of public funds um but that's where you would want some transparency and some clarity and and some sense of direction, a bit like you were saying before, just just clarity about the NHS offer going forward. And it it sounds as if whilst that that isn't um, and that clarity isn't imminent, it, it it's being worked on and it will come, maybe with greater sense of urgency than than before.
1: I hope so. I hope so. I I, I hope with the conversations that I've been having with uh, with the, the office of the chief dental officer, NHS England. Um, and the Minister uh, you know I've had uh, plenty of contact with the minister as well I would hope that you know there is a realization that dentistry needs fixing um, and I, I, I and I think you know there's always the possibility that we lose a minister and the minister gets changed and we go back to square one again we've that's happened in the past I hope we have some continuity because this minister does listen uh, and I, I think she's getting the argument that dentistry needs fixing and it does need fixing
0: well um i think on on that note uh, i'll just say thank you very much in, indeed eddie really really appreciate your time and and thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation and uh, if we get the chance to do it again i'd be uh be very appreciative because um i've, I've got some notes i made before we we started talking and um, I, i'm I've got so many other things i'd love to to run by you but that'll have to be another day so for now thank you very very much indeed and and I'll, i guess i'll see you again um on the 2nd of march where i think we're both on a on a question time panel about this very issue about actually um is nhs dentistry even possible post covid so that that hopefully will be quite an interesting and lively debate so uh hopefully some people will um will join us that are here tonight will um will come and join us on on the 2nd of march as well so look forward to seeing you then thank you very much Eddie and thank you everyone for tuning in to to this webinar thank you